Father, we come before you, and we know that you are the healer, and you can bring healing to Travis and to Frank Kelly and to Frank Testa. Uh, we'd ask that you would do that, Lord, and that it would be used for your glory. But we understand as we pray these things, we pray according to your will. For we know we are all under a curse, and every one of us, should we not see the rapture, every one of us will expire from this life. But we ask, Lord, that you would have mercy on the families, the children, the parents, everyone concerned, that you would bring healing to these individuals. And, Father, we ask that you would also continue to work in us spiritually, that you would inform us and that we would accept your word. We know that we are prone to do evil. We are prone to wander, to leave the Lord we love. We had asked that you would help us to cling to your word even when it is very, very hard. And Lord, we know that you can strengthen us for this task. Your Holy Spirit lives in us. You have given us a, a spirit of self-control. And we pray for that to be magnified so that we might be of service to you and bring glory to your kingdom. Accomplish this through your word this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this idea of divorce that I've pretty much finished up, I am going to just recap and move on, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to finish the chapter here, chapter 5, and go on to chapter 6. If you remember, we are in the Sermon on the Mount here. Jesus is delivering his longest message that is listed for us in the book of Matthew and in the entire Bible. And if you only had a few things to say, what would you say to somebody if you knew you were going to be leaving soon? And that's what Jesus is doing here. And, and Jesus starts out with these seeming paradoxes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the earth. These types of things are almost like paradoxes. And then he gets into these different attitudes of the day. And he says, well, you think it's okay to be angry with somebody, but if you were at anger or if you were angry with your brother, especially without a cause, some texts have that, then you are in danger of judgment. And if you call somebody or you, you say to them, Raka, you are in danger of hellfire. And so just the thought process that we have Jesus says that's what needs to be shaped up. It's not just the exterior which is there. And we're going to see how Jesus has done that. And like on divorce, and they thought that we could divorce for any reason. They could divorce for any reason, according to Deuteronomy chapter 24. And they even incorrectly said, Moses commanded us to give a writ of divorcement. And Jesus said, no, he didn't command you. It was an option for those who were struggling, and it was only because of the hardness of the hearts. And so to summarize, the reasons for divorce or the dissolution of a marriage specifically, number one is death, number two is adultery, and number three, if an unbelieving spouse says, I am done, and leaves, and that's from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says that person is no longer bound in such circumstances. Those are the only reasons a marriage should come to its end. And this is a hard teaching. And even the disciples understood it because they turned to Jesus and said, if this is the case, it's better for a man not to marry. And Jesus didn't say, oh, no, no, you misunderstand. He said, no, you're right. 
And those who have that gift, if they can receive it, they'll be blessed. It's good for them. And so he affirmed that the disciples, they thought this was hard. This is a hard teaching. And he goes, yep, it is. And this is the way it was supposed to be from the very beginning. And it was the Jews that had the hard hearts, and that's the reason why Moses allowed it. The scriptures concerning divorce, in case you didn't have them, they're in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 19, Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 16, or Mark chapter 10, Luke chapter 16, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, it says God hates divorce, and Deuteronomy 24. And if you want to do further Bible study on it, that's where you would go, and you'd look up those specific scriptures. There are things that surround that, but those are the scriptures you would go to. And a summary of those scriptures, God hates divorce, as I just said, and it always involves adultery. If there is a divorce, there is adultery, even with the unbeliever leaving, because then you go and marry somebody else, and you're not with your original spouse, and it involves adultery. And that adultery certainly needs to be repented of. God's plan for marriage is one man, one woman until death. If man or woman divorce and remarry, adultery is committed. And when a divorce takes place between two Christians, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, both parties are to remain single or be reconciled to one another. Now, a question came up, and I've had this question before. I've looked through my previous messages on this, and I've if I've gone through it once, I've gone through it a dozen times in church uh, and in different teachings and in different environments, whether home Bible study or uh, delivering a, a word on Sunday morning or to a men's group. A uh, question comes up, what about the person who is a believer who has divorced and remarried? Scripture says that they have committed adultery. This is true. They have committed adultery if they do this. Is that sin of adultery forgivable or is it perpetual? And this is important because in Scripture, it tells us that the adulterer will not inherit the kingdom of God. It says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. It says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he defines the wicked as some who think they're saved. He says, Do not be deceived Neither the sexually immoral, and the word that is used there is porneia, where we get pornography. And this idea of porneia encompasses every single sexual sin that you can possibly imagine that would take place out there. So he says, sexual morality, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, and it is the word for adultery that is used there, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what some of you were. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So the question still remains, if a person divorces, who is a believer, gets remarried to somebody else, and they should be in the Lord, um, scripture, Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians again. They must be a believer if they remarry, but Scripture already says, do not remarry, but some people do. And when they get remarried, is that sin of adultery that is committed, is it perpetual or can it be forgiven? Scripture is clear. It can be forgiven. 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 9 says, 
If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That certainly takes place. And so this is not a sin that would be perpetual in somebody's life, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It talks about the individual who believes that they can sin and it's okay. And that's the sin of presumption. Like, for instance, the individual who married, divorced, and remarried that's a believer, they find themselves in this situation. They need to turn to God and say, God, forgive me. You know, I didn't follow what you said. Forgive me of that sin. And he does. He forgives us of that sin. But the person who says, yeah, I'm going to divorce, and I'm going to get remarried, and God will forgive me. That is called the sin of presumption. The sin of presumption is where somebody is counting on something to be true that may not necessarily be true, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. And so the sin of presumption, like you're presuming that God is just going to forgive you, and then somebody will defer to 1 John 1, 9, where God forgives us that sin. But that's the person who has recognized that they have sinned, and they actually repent. This idea of the sin of presumption, it is birthed in pride. I can do this and it's okay. And if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and you read through there, it's no, it's not okay to do that, to presume on the grace of God. And so it's it's on one hand for the person who says, Lord, I've done wrong, grace and mercy heaped upon that person. That person deserves all the love that God can bring through us and we're to show it to them. And the person who says, I can do whatever I want, it it would be like saying, I'm going to commit this murder and God's going to forgive me of this so I can just do it. And that's any one of the sins that are listed, whether in uh, Galatians chapter 5 or 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9, it's this, I can do it and it's okay, like the sin of homosexuality. There's this belief that we can allow people to do that, not warn them. And if we do warn them, then we are called haters. And when I say we, it's those who would stand up and declare the moral law of God, saying this is wrong. And if I went to somebody and tried to condemn them for it, they are already self-condemned. I don't have to do that. I don't have to beat them over the head, take the biggest Bible I can and say, you need to repent, you sinners. It it is God that works inside the heart. He softens the individual inside, and that allows a person to repent. And so all of these sins that are out there, it's the presumption of forgiveness in order to carry out the sin, and that can only be known in the heart of the individual. As far as we are concerned, anybody who says, yeah, you know, I've asked the Lord forgiveness. Well, that's it for me. I, I don't need anything else from that. Well, what if they fall again? Well, if they ask forgiveness, well, I forgive them too. You know, they've, they've forgiven, been forgiven by God as often as they go to him. He forgives them seven times 70, and that's what I'm supposed to do too. I forgive them seven times 70. That's where the extending of kindness and compassion and forgiveness, all of those things are to be hallmarks of those of us who are Christians, who name the name of Christ. 
And if somebody from the world says, you're just way too forgiving, you can say, thank you. That's that's the way we're supposed to be. We're not supposed to be condemning. It's just, on one hand, it's the grace of God for the individual who feels trapped, the individual who feels condemned because they were taken advantage of and somebody left them in a marriage. And they, they feel like they don't belong. They feel like they're maybe a second-class citizen. And they're not. They're loved by God just like anyone else is loved by God. But the other part of it is a warning. And not a warning from me. I, I am simply communicating the word. Jesus says, don't. Don't get the divorce. Now, that, that seems so hard because people are a bunch of sinners. Do you guys know that? I mean, they get, they get out there and they do just terrible, terrible things in the confines of marriage. And, and how do you rectify that? You know, on one hand, you would say, choose well. On the other hand, you'd say, you never know what you're going to get. How did uh, Forrest Gump say that? Life's like a box of chocolates. You never know which one you're going to get. And I have done premarital counseling with some couples one or two in specific. And we sat down, we went through all the bases. Okay, you guys, oh yeah, we're going to get you married. And all the answers were correct, all the sheets that they filled out, the five or six or seven times we met, all the answers were spot on. And then the marriages didn't last a month. And you're going, what happened? And there was certainly some deception going on there. And so that individual, they, they should not feel like they have been just beaten badly. Well, they have been beaten badly, so to speak, psychologically, but they're not to feel like they're outcasts. They're to be given grace and kindness and compassion. But on the other side, again, it's this idea of the sin of presumption. And Jesus warns all of us as believers, don't engage in the sin of presumption. And by the way, when it seems like someone is trapped and they feel condemned and some have been victims of divorce and we want to extend to them that mercy and grace and compassion, I would remind everyone that God himself is a divorcee. It says in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce. And sent her away because of all of her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. So God issued a writ, a certificate of divorce for the nation of Israel. But he did that because of the adultery. And that's the one exception that's given in scripture. The adultery that takes place. But he went back and he took them to himself again. You remember... Gomer, it's a prostitute, a woman. Now, what was the prophet's name? Hosea. God went to Hosea and said, Hosea, I want you to go out in the red light district and I want you to pick up a prostitute and I want you to marry her. And he goes, I can imagine what he said. You know, marriages are supposed to be arranged and God says, I've arranged one for you. Go get her. And when God, Gomer, married her 
And she was unfaithful over and over and over. And God told Hosea, go get her again, take her home, make her your wife. And that was the picture of Israel. Where God went and God is so disobedient this woman was. The wandering eye, the, the frivolous heart that she had. And God said, that's okay. I'm going to take her back. And that's what Hosea did in going and getting Gomer, the woman who was a prostitute, and made her his wife forever. And God does that with us. We are his, <coughs> excuse me, bride. We are in the betrothal stage of Jesus Christ. Uh, we, we are his bride. He is the bridegroom. And we are waiting to be united with him. And this idea of divorce and adultery it is so outstanding in the mind of God, he made it one of his Ten Commandments. He said, do not commit adultery. That's how important it is to him. It made it in the top ten list. And so we want to make sure that we heed this. And when it comes to working these things out as far as divorce, marriage, or marriage, divorce, and remarriage, most people will come up with what they feel is the right thing. And if you go to different commentaries, if you listen to different teachers, you will eventually find somebody that teaches what you want to hear. And the thing that we need to keep in mind is go to the Scripture and rightly divide the Scripture. Those people who are solid Bible teachers will give you the Greek and the Hebrew the background of what took place during the cultural times that Jesus existed in and all of the Jews. And if you follow that line of reasoning, you will not fall into error. And if you go to several people that teach the Word of God and you know that they are solid in their exegeting of the Scriptures, you will not have to fear that you're going to make a mistake. And so there's these two opposing ideas. There is exegeting and there is eisegeting eisegeting is like for instance the person who says i'm going to divorce and god will forgive me and i'm going to go to the scripture and find where that's true then you can cherry pick out a particular verse out of context and say see god allows this where if you take the whole of scripture that is exegeting. If you take all the verses that deal with that and all the contexts which are delivered and on the Greek and the Hebrew language and you look at how those things are used and you, you go to Robertson's, you go to Wiest, and you go to different scholars in the Greek and the Hebrew and they will let you know what is right and what is wrong. And this is not an issue that God was... Unam or he is unambiguous. He was not ambiguous. He was not vague. What exactly does he mean by that? And if you want to make a, a potpourri, if you want to uh, select different scriptures and put together a puzzle that suits what you would want or what I would want, we do that a lot, we will fall into error. But if we just go to the simple word that is there, it is very clear from the scripture. And so... I just wanted to make sure I covered that, leave it to rest. I don't want to beat a dead horse, so to speak. And we will end up moving on here. So up to this point, 
Jesus contrasts what they have heard and with what he declares the tr- as the truth. In other words, you have heard it said, but I tell you. He did this several times. He did this concerning murder, Matthew five twenty-one through 26. Anger as opposed to the act of murder. He did this concerning adultery, Matthew tw- uh, chapter 5, 27 through 30. The heart, it needs to be corrected as opposed to the physical act. Remember, if you've lusted after another woman in your heart for men, and by the way, uh, for those who are mature, we understand that that also means for women, even though the men are mentioned there. And by the way, in the New Testament times, the woman couldn't get a divorce. She couldn't file for a divorce under the Jewish law. In the, the Greek and the Roman times, apparently there were some cases of this, but the Jews, they could not do that. It was only the man who could sue, so to speak, for divorce. Even in, I think it was Sweden, I was listening to a message in Sweden, there is a no-fault, one-hour divorce where you can just, and I think it's Sweden. I'll, I'll have to double-check that. But you can just go in and say, hey, I'm done. You burnt the toast. We're out of here. And, and that is the end of the marriage. And, and that's the way the world is going. And you hear all kinds of stories like that. In one particular uh, place this one judge he had so many divorces taking place that he would do it by groups where the couples would come in and he would just blanket them and grant the divorce and say this is what you're going to do and he'd haul them in and move them out by divorce and he decided it would be better to do it by by mail or by email and you fill out this affidavit and you throw it in the hopper and he gets it and signs it off and he declares this is the way it's going to go. And so we've made it real easy in our culture. And by the way, the things that I've talked to you about in the last three weeks about marriage and divorce and remarriage, it runs against the grain of our culture. Our culture is, don't even bother with getting married. Just cohabitate and then you don't have to worry about that. And then if it dissolves, and by the way, um, I had a family member, I'm going back now, back to Calvary Chapel, San Diego and North Park. Those of you who don't know what Calvary Chapel of San Diego and North Park was, it was the old North Park Theater. Uh, it's where I got my teeth cut, so to speak. It's where I met people who were mature, uh, that discipled me. It was a, a great environment there, but uh, I had a family member that had a good friend, and he decided he was going to start a church, but he believed a little bit differently than Calvary Chapel of San Diego, and so he didn't believe that the state had to recognize a marriage, and so they just got together. They got married in their own eyes, and they existed together as husband and wife for, it was over a decade, and he started this church, and a family member of mine went to this particular church. Well, their quote-unquote marriage ran into some problems, and they decided to break up, and they didn't have to file for divorce because they were never married. They were just living together, but he had a church. And it's like, what are you doing here, you know? And, and God sets up the governments so that we follow them and we submit to them. And, and so... He, this guy was in complete error, but, uh, you know, let me just go on. So this idea of adultery and, and divorce, concerning divorce, they thought it was permitted or commanded, and Jesus said, no, there's only one exception uh, that he gave us and Paul gave another. And then he moves on from this point in verse 33 to oaths and later to justice and then to loving your enemies. And so if you're going to leave, you knew you're taken off, 
You talk to people about the important things that God himself considers important. This is what you need to know. And he's dealing with the hypocrisy first because they built up these ideas of the way things should be under God's heading. And God said, no, none of those are right. And this is the truth. And so he goes on to oaths. The Jews were into taking oaths. Verse 33. Again, you have heard. And the way that they would hear this is they would have oral traditions. And eventually that was put down into the Talmud and the the Mishnah. And it was commentary by the uh, rabbis of old. And they would cling to that even more so than the scriptures. And Jesus condemned them for this. He said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And so they were into swearing all the time. I swear to you by heaven above that this is true. I swear to you by the temple. I swear to you by the gold in the temple. And and they go, oh, he must really mean it then. Now, if you want to turn over a few pages to Matthew chapter 23, Jesus addresses it. Here again. And he's talking to the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jews. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 16, he says, Woe to you, blind guides! Exclamation point. You say if somebody swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater? the gold, or the temple that makes the gold sacred. You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, that's three times, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. You cannot divorce God from anything that God represents himself to us with. It's like the earth. You can't swear by the earth because the earth is his footstool. You can't swear by the stars because he flung out the stars. They're his. You can't swear by anything. You can't swear by your head. My head, may my head be taken off if this is not correct. Don't swear by your head. You can't make any changes on your head. You can't grow one single hair just by thinking about it. You cannot make one single hair in your head white or turn it gray or blonde or brunette. You can't do any of that. And that's what he's telling them. Don't swear. Now, why would somebody swear? It's because their normal word was not trusted. And if you have to swear to give it validity, and then people will think, well, I can trust them now. But when they would take their oaths, they would take their oaths in order to deceive. Like, for instance, they would say, oh, you know, you can swear by the gift on the altar, but don't swear by the altar. The reason they did that is because they thought they didn't have to keep their oath because it was only the gift on the altar. It wasn't the altar. 
or the gold in the temple as opposed to the temple. And so if they kept God out of it, they thought, you can tell this oath, you can declare this oath, and not keep it, and you'll be okay. And they were lying left and right. And God was telling them, you, he called them what, brood of vipers? You snakes, you know, you know, little poisonous things that come up and just bite and kill people. That's what he called them. And he accused them of leading the, the regular Jew astray, the Israelites, the leaders. He said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not see heaven. They were a bunch of corrupt individuals. And remember, this is the Sermon on the Mount. I want to go back and give you the context. Jesus is sitting there. There's thousands of people sitting around. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying, and he goes on to blessed are the poor in spirit and he gives the Beatitudes there and he goes into these other things, a light, uh, you cannot put your light under a bushel. A light needs to be like a city set on a hill and salt. And he gave all these instances, all these examples. And at the same time, he's looking over the heads of the disciples at the Pharisees who were all around. And right now he is on oaths. And they were taking oaths left and right so they could lie. And he goes, let your yes be yes and your no be no, which means they were being indicted at that particular point. Do you think they were happy about that? I bet their arms just got tighter and tighter and they started looking at each other and going, what are we going to do with this guy? This guy's just ruining what we have going on here. And so there was going to be some animosity developed because of this. So there were types of oaths when the name of God was included. It was absolutely binding, but without the name of God, it was less binding. And everything belongs to God, heaven, earth, Jerusalem, the head, the, head, the hair, the self, all of those things. It's God's home, God's footstool, God's city, God's creation. Everything belongs to God. So if you start swearing and it's not just yes and yes and no and no, then you're probably telling a lie. James, James the book of James, repeats the command not to swear. James 5 verse 12 says, But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, lest you fall into condemnation. So if, in other words, as believers, if you say you're going to do something, just do it. Now I'm going to tell you a little story. I know of a guy, and, and him and his wife, and they were struggling a little bit. And the wife asked him to pick up some bread on the way home when he was going home at night. And he happened to call his wife at night on his way home and just checking in with her. And the wife said, did you stop and get the bread? And he goes, oh, you know, I'm right here. I'll stop and get it. And she said, you see why I can't trust you? And I heard that, and I thought to myself, now that's extreme. That's, that's going too far. Let your word be your word. You say you will do something. We started getting older. You know, we walk around and go, where did I put my keys? You know? <laughs> we can't even remember. We're going home, and I, oh, I forgot to get gas. 
But we don't want to hold somebody accountable when it's something like that, like it's just old age. You lost that brain cell. You know, the synaptic connections are a little off. It was a rough day at work. And so you want to make sure if somebody comes to you and says, I'm going to do X, Y, or Z, then you assume they're going to do it. And there might be a reason why it doesn't get fulfilled. Like, you know, I was going to do it, but I got four flat tires on the Highway 5 when I was coming home, and I just wasn't able to do it. See why I can't trust you? It's like, no, no, that's not what God is talking about. If you were determined to keep your word, we understand the proper context to keep your word. It's not that accidents aren't going to happen. We're to be understanding in those things. And sometimes we're just going to fail. And when we fail, we say, you know, will you forgive me for that? And, of course, we know if we don't forgive, we won't be forgiven. So, of course, you're going to say, yeah, I forgive you for that. God bless you. You know, that type of thing. Sprinkle a little holy water on them and we'll be just fine going from there. Now, it, it goes on. We are not prohibited from taking oaths. If you want to take an oath... You can do that. God wasn't in the habit of saying, okay, I want you to take this oath and I want you to take that oath. Matthew 26, verse 63, it says, But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. And, and so Jesus was under this oath. He, he charged him, the high priest charged him for taking this oath. Also Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 13 says, Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Now what kind of oath would you take? Well, Lord, I'm going to fast this Friday. I dedicate it to you and I'm not going to eat anything. Well, good. Dedicate it to the Lord. You want to say an oath like that? Keep it. It's better not to take an oath and not fulfill it than to take one. And don't be rash in taking oaths. Don't make mistakes and, and declare you're going to do something for the Lord and then not follow through with it. Deuteronomy 10.20 says, Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. And so there is a time to take an oath if you're going to dedicate something to the Lord. But you want to be careful in doing that. And so the Jews would do this simply so that they could deceive people and make it seem like their words meant a little more than what it actually meant. Going on in verse 38. Verse 38 here deals with justice. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. This is what is known as the lex talionis or the law of retaliation. I don't know about you, but I have fought this one my whole life. Where if somebody does me wrong, I I can just, I think of a slew of ways, methods to get them back and pay them back harder. That you will understand, in my flesh, uh, if I let it run, it'll just take off. And I have to tell myself, no stop it and my flesh goes but it would be so satisfying and and it would it would be so satisfying to do that but you know my i am so wicked on the inside i just have to tell myself no 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 to give you an idea (laughs) what i think about years decades ago somebody had wronged me in business and i was taking care of a large project of theirs 
and in my heart, because they had done me so wrong, I was going to pay them back. And I thought how I could hook up a herbicide to their irrigation system. And I, I, I'm going through it in my mind. I'm going, I could kill everything there. And, you know, and I'm going, and, and I realize what I'm doing. I'm going, what are you doing? You know, it's like the good guy, the bad guy. I slap myself. I knock it off. You know, you're representing the Lord here. And okay, okay. You know, and I would have to suppress that. I, it just happens. My flesh comes up and I want to pay back. It, it's not an eye for an eye. I wanted to pay back hard. I wanted to make sure that somebody was going to really know that I was going to get them back. Have you ever heard, if they bring a knife to a fight, we bring a gun? Have you ever heard that? Do you know who said that? Obama. Obama said that. If they bring a knife to the fight... We bring a gun. Now, where did he get that from? Do you know where he's from? Chicago. Let me quote you something. You want to know how to get Capone? They pull a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. Do you know who said that? Malone and Ness. Elliot Ness, the untouchables. That's where he got it from. And whether it's the president, and by the way, all presidents misspeak. They say things that are wrong. All senators, all congressmen, not us. But they, they definitely, we all do it. We, we all want to pay back more. We always want the other hand. We want to make sure that nobody retaliates. And if they do, this is uh, Machiavelli. He was a ruthless politician. He would say things like, you know, you, if you're going to pay somebody back, make sure they understand it's not worth it after you pay them back to try to get back at you. You so ruin them. And, and so that is the way of the world. But as believers in Christ, we want equity if they're, we're supposed to desire that. If somebody has wronged you, you only need to be paid back for the loss you have suffered. Have you heard about these lawsuits that will return millions of dollars for burned coffee in the lap? Like, that, that is not equitable at all. How about those people who say, well, I want punitive damages. I want to make sure that we just not only get back what we deserve, but they are punished for what they have. We want to just run them through the mud. God says, don't. It's a lex talionis. We want to make sure it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But that was Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, it's listed several places. Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19. And so the Jews thought they were righteous in doing this, yet we want to uh, make sure we get paid back exactly. But it, this idea of lex talionis, it was to limit vengeance, that you couldn't go back and really take somebody out and pay them back ten times of whatever they paid you for. And this was listed, actually, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 24. This guy named Lemek. 
He said, if Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech, 77-fold. It's like, I'm going to pay you back 77 times, not just seven times. And so it is in our nature to want to pay back just much more. And this limits vengeance, this eye for the eye, tooth for the tooth. It also gives the Lord the ability to take revenge. You know, we want revenge. We want justice. We want justice for everybody else, but not for us. We say, you get to get paid back for this, but God forgives me, so I don't have to have anything come my way. And God says, no, that's not the way it's supposed to work. And so we, we want to make sure that when somebody comes along an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth, Jesus had something more to say about that. In verse 39, it says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes, to you, strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And he wasn't saying if somebody strikes you on the right cheek, you go, come on, do it again, you know, something like that. He, he's just saying, you know, okay, and you accept it humbly. Because, by the way, the Jews, they were in the habit of striking somebody on the face. Remember Jesus when he was crucified? Put it over his face. The Romans, they hit him. Who hit you? They played that game. That was very common back then. The Apostle Paul, you know, he was beaten. The, the disciples, I'm sure, the other apostles, they were all beaten. And he said, don't retaliate. Don't demand the eye for the eye. And this is contrary to the world. He goes on to say in verse 40, if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. It's my stuff, and you can't have it. And he says, if you want to sue him, well, remember Jesus also said, settle matters quickly before you get to court. <laughs> I would advise that. And somebody wants to sue you for your coat, give him your cloak also before you ever end up in court. And, you know, that may bring some appeasement. But Jesus says here, let me continue. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. It was the habit of the Roman soldiers, and it was the law, that if they're carrying their pack, that they could grab any citizen, and they could say, carry my pack, and they were obligated to carry it for one mile. He said, if somebody does that to you, go with them too. Don't just go with them one Go with them too. Why? So you can be a witness of Christ. The Jews just hated the Romans. Rick, I'll put this thing on and carry it down with it. And they, they would go back. And Jesus is saying, no, go too with them. And I'm sure the Jews were popping blood vessels. Like, what are you talking about? They were just getting really upset, I'm sure, by this point. He goes on to say, Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And of course, when somebody wants to borrow, you're supposed to give it not expecting to be repaid. Now, this doesn't mean that you borrow your neighbor's lawnmower and never return it. Now, I haven't had that problem. Or say somebody borrows a tool. Can I borrow the tool? Make sure it's returned in as good a condition, if not better, as a believer than when you received it. But this idea, somebody comes up and says, you know, I'm in need. Can, can you help me out? You don't have to go, what, what do you want? Huh? What do you want from me? Just, hey, I, I just need some help here. Can you give me some help? And you have to determine if it's genuine help, right? 
How many people want to come up to you and say, hey, can you help me out? It's frustrating for me. I've told this story before. Patty and I, we were up at Grossmont Center, and we were going to see a movie. And we had had a disagreement about, uh, I forget what it was about, but it's like the, only the third disagreement we've ever had in our lives. And as, as we were heading to the uh, theater, we were going to see a movie. We're walking together, and normally we're holding hands. Uh, like last week, we went to home, or, yeah, yesterday. Went to Home Depot yesterday. And I said, can I hold your hand? And she looked at me and she said, yes. And so we're walking into Home Depot and we're holding hands and we're walking through there. Well, going to this movie, we weren't holding hands. We were just like, come on. Let's go enjoy this movie. You're going to like it. You know, that type of thing. And as we're walking to the movie, this guy, you see him, he's running towards me. I'm going, all right, what's coming? He goes, man, can you help me out? I, I need some gas. I go, we just ran out on the freeway right here. Oh, man, can you spare a few bucks so I can get some gas? And my buddy and I, we can, you know, we can take off. And, it, and I'm going, <sighs> so I'm remembering some of the teaching that I got. Don't just give somebody money. Go do it for them. Go get the gas can. Go get the gas. Take it to them on the freeway. Give them a ride back. So I'm going, Great. We're going to have to miss the movie. It's going to be late. You know, so oh, Rick is snacking in Zoom. You know, so I'm, I'm walking through the parking lot here, and all of a sudden the guy goes, oh, wait, there's my buddy. Hey, I, I think he has some over there. And he just starts taking off running. The guy was a slime ball. Excuse me. The guy was trying to deceive me. He just wanted some money, and he was making up this story. And I was going to take him to his car and everything. And so there are people out there who want something from you, and it's not a genuine need, and you have to discern, is this a genuine need, or am I going to help them in the situation that's going to keep them in a bad situation, or am I genuinely helping them? And God will give us wisdom when we want to do that. But God says, if somebody asks something from you, give it to them. Don't hoard whatever it is, whether it's a tool or money or whatever the case might be. If somebody wants to borrow from you, let them. And you might say, well, they might take advantage of me. They might. And whose credit is going to be, or whose account is going to be credited in heaven if you do that through pure motives and you get taken advantage of? Don't worry. Anything that you lose in this life, God will repay up there. Now, when I I read this stuff as I'm going through this, my flesh is going, no, no, no. That's, none of this stuff should be the way it is. And Jesus goes, yes, it is. And when we read the words of Jesus, it, it is a process where we have to transform our minds to think the way God does. And we don't want to do that. We want the flesh to resurrect. Jesus says, offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. This is your reasonable service in Romans chapter 12. And, and so you're supposed to crucify yourself every single day. But we're down there on the cross, crucifying the flesh, and the flesh says, no! And it pulls out the spikes and gets up. And you have to subdue 
do it. Paul says, I buffet my body every day, which means your body's on the cross. And metaphorically, you're punching it out and you're nailing it back down. And it says, I'm going to live. And you say, no, you're not. And it's this struggle. And it takes place right here in the old noggin. And that's where you have to deal with it. And so when you know what scripture says, you put that word in there, you're able to transform your mind. And pretty soon it becomes like second nature. But if you want to resist that all the time, then it's going to be a difficult walk with the Lord. It's hard as it is anyhow to crucify yourself and to walk the way the Lord asks us to walk. And so the Lord wants us to go beyond what is expected and do the unexpected. We are not to demand our rights. We are not to seek punitive damages. We are to give of ourselves and even be at risk of being taken advantage of because we're helping others. This is how Jesus walked. Now, I would go on in verse 43 about loving your enemies. There's a lot to say on that, especially in context with the Pharisees and the Sadducees listening into what Jesus has to say. But when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was, in his day, radical. He was taking the the conventions of the day, turning them on their head, exposing the leadership for who they were, were, the disingenuous attitudes that they had, and the sin that was flagrant to all, but nobody said anything. And Jesus is the one who shows up just like John the Baptist. And what happened to John the Baptist? Lost his head because of it. Jesus calls us to not only teach these things, but to implement them ourselves. And this is the task of life. It is hard. It is difficult. But the Lord says we will have a blessed life if we do it. We may have trouble implementing these things, but we will have more trouble if we don't follow his teaching. And God just wants to bless us. May God bless you, fill you full of his spirit. May he give you and me the capacity to receive what his word has to say and not eisegete things and make things up as we go along just to suit ourselves, make ourselves feel better and make ourselves happier. May we be of the mind Whatever the Lord wants, no matter what it costs us, may we follow through with that. Let's pray. Father, we turn to you and we ask for your help. For we are not capable of following your word in our flesh. But we know as your spirit strengthens us and ministers to us, we can be transformed. And so we ask for that, Lord. We ask for the ability to muster the self-control that is necessary and forgive us when we fail and help us, Lord, for those who we see constantly struggling or failing, extend to them grace and mercy. May we be kind and compassionate to those who struggle. And Father, we know that you are with us, so help us to be like you. In Jesus' name.